Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is mixer Billy Decker. First of all, YouTube is vetting its channel partners a little differently these days. I got an email from a listener recently that said, all of a sudden, I can't monetize my YouTube channel. YouTube has cut me off. And there's a reason for that. They've kind of changed what the criteria is for monetizing your channel and videos. It used to be you needed 10,000 views across all of your videos, and that would qualify you to become what they called a channel partner. And if you became a channel partner, then you could monetize your videos. Not that you could make that much money because 99% of all channels make less than $100 a year. That being said, now they've changed the criteria. Now you need 1,000 subscribers and at least 4,000 hours of watch time before you can qualify. Now, the reason for that is YouTube wants to learn a lot more about your channel because they want to weed out some bad actors. The bad actors are the ones that are putting fake news up or video content that's disturbing in one way or another. So this is giving YouTube a little extra time to really evaluate what your channel is all about. It's not a problem for most of us, but again, before we can start to monetize, you need to reach that level, 1,000 subscribers and 4,000 hours of watch time. Shouldn't be a problem if you're putting up material regularly and if you have any kind of a following. YouTube is also vetting videos through something new that they're calling the Google Preferred. Now, these are only videos that have been verified by a human, so there's more control over ad placement. The problem was that advertisers were actually pulling their ads because they were being placed beside inappropriate content. And in an effort to get the advertisers back, and we're talking about big advertisers, they instituted this program, Google Preferred. Now, as a result of that, they're also giving channel partners some additional control over ad placement. So you can determine a bit more what kind of ads are appropriate for your channel and where they're going to be placed inside your content. That's all a step in the right direction. Yes, the criteria is a little higher than it used to be in order to become a recognized channel partner and therefore monetize your channel. But again, it's really a low bar because a thousand subscribers isn't all that much if you have a reasonable following and you're putting up good content all the time. If you put up enough content, that should happen relatively soon. So anyway, look out for those changes if YouTube is a big part of your online strategy. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. Check out my Hitmakers Club for access to the Private Mixers Facebook group, monthly deconstructed hits, mixing workshop and Q&A webinars, and for a short time, access to my core training module bonus. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, a lot of you may know that the NAM show is happening this week, the Winter NAM in Anaheim. It's a big event. All of us like to go there because it's all the new stuff, although we can now see it online before it happens. But now it's, it's a nice event to be able to go and see people and see gear in the flesh. And also there's usually some surprises. What's new this year is AES is also having a conference concurrently, and they're calling it AES at NAM. It's the first one, hopefully first of many, 
It's going to be in the Hilton on the fourth floor, and it's actually a separate registration. Just because you're registered for NAM doesn't mean you can get into AES. But I think if you're registered for AES, you can get into NAM. Now, that being said, there's a lot going on at this AES. It's broken up into a number of different academies and sessions. There's audio science and technology. There's the Studios Academy. There's a line array loudspeaker system academy. There's entertainment wireless technology sessions. There's in-ear monitoring. There's live mixing console academy. There's sound system measurement and optimization sessions. And the main stage is where I'm going to be. I put together the studio sessions in the Laguna A room. We're going to have a number of great speakers. Andrew Sheps, Michael Beinhorn, the great producer, Sylvia Massey is going to talk about outside-the-box recording, Jack Joseph Puig. Owen Curtin is going to talk about the state of do-it-yourself. In other words, the state of building your own gear. Dennis Moody is going to talk about recording celebrity drummers. Chris Townsend from Townsend Labs is going to talk all about a virtual microphone, if there's a virtual mic in your future. Carl Tatz and Bob Hodes will talk about acoustics and fixing up your room. And John Jennings from Royer Labs is going to give his excellent Ribbon Mics 101 talk. So there's a lot going on. I hope to see you there. If you're going to be at NAM, you can either register for half a day or a day or for the whole four days, but it's going to be pretty good. It's the first of many, hopefully, AES at NAM. And once again, I'll be in the Laguna A room for the main stage and I'm the host there, so I'll be there all day. Come by and see me and say hi. Billy Decker was one of the first mixers in Nashville to embrace mixing in the box and the first to mix a number one single in the box. Billy has mixed eight number one hits so far for artists like Kenny Chesney, Darius Rucker, Jason Aldean, Jamie Lynn Spears, and Sam Hunt. But what's so unusual is that he mixes so fast, anywhere between two and three and a half hours. I spoke to Billy all about his mixing approach as well as his favorite plugins and processors from a studio in Nashville. You got started kind of late in the business, didn't you? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I've actually been doing it since uh, I went to Full Sail right out of college after the University of Nebraska. Moved to Nashville uh, probably in 94. So I've been kind of doing this since then, but didn't really hit a lick until probably 2000, 2001. That's when I really got going pretty heavy and then had my first number one around 2006. I guess you could say that's late. (laughs) You went to, you said University of Nebraska first before you hit Full Sail? I did, yeah. I got a uh, five-year bachelor's degree. Well, it took me five years. supposed to only take four, but it took me five in uh, criminal justice. I got a bachelor's of criminal justice that looks real nice just hanging on my wall. That's about all it's doing. I I was going to go to law school or be like a CIA, FBI guy, you know, and then right at the last second, I was just like, I don't think I can shoot somebody. (laughs) I'd always play play in bands in college. That was kind of my part-time job. And uh, I went down to Full Sail in order to make my band sound better. And then uh, once I got down there, I realized, oh, I'm way better on this side of the glass than on the singing side, you know? So I just stayed, turned it into a career. And a good one at that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, 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 it's been pretty good doing this here in Nashville. It beats working. 
you were the first engineer in Nashville to really take Pro Tools seriously, from what I understand, or the first one to actually have a number one using it. So what made you go there? Uh, you know, I just needed something to uh, get me home faster at night. I had two children, uh, my son and my daughter. They were, you know, three and five at the time, or three and six. And uh, I was missing them growing up. You know, I was just working all the time. And uh, a friend of mine showed me Pro Tools, and <clears throat> I was like, hey, I can mix in this thing. So I just started everything in Pro Tools, whereas uh, I went out and bought myself a – I used to be on a big console back in the day, just bouncing around from studio to studio. And uh, a friend of mine showed me Pro Tools, so I actually went out and bought a Digi 001, one of the very first ones, you know, way back when they were just getting going and locked it up with ADATs or this Mackie hard disk recorder. I can't remember what I was using at the time. But uh, I taught myself Pro Tools, and then eventually I just got a bigger system and a bigger system and realized I could actually mix on it, save it, and uh, snap it up 100%. You know, if I stayed 100% in the box, I could recall in a moment's notice 100% and it would come back exactly like I left it, and I could also bounce around for multiple projects. So it eliminated the need for me to have an assistant, and uh, it actually got me home sooner so I could, you know, have a normal life, eat dinner with the family, and not miss out on the finer things. Yeah, that's what got me into it. Now, that's pretty common today where, gee, just about every mixer does that, but you took a chance going into it so early. Was there a pushback from clients back then doing it all in a box yeah there was at first and a lot of other engineers and and way back in the day all the forums and all the magazines are like oh you can't do this you can't do this and i'm like well you know what i'm doing it and i'm making a lot of money so i'm gonna keep doing it <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's i stuck to it and and got a jump on it a lot sooner than a lot of other people and then uh since then, I've just really refined using templates and and uh, being able to recall stuff. So I'll I'll mix you know four or five projects in a day, not necessarily from start, but I'll I'll come in in the morning and the first thing I'll do is recall something that maybe some I did the day or two days before, and uh, so I'll spend the morning recalling mixes, fixing them up, and then I'll start on the new stuff in the afternoon. And a lot of times I'll just get a call out of the blue. And I'll just stop what I'm doing, save, jump to their project, fix it, send them a new mix, an alt mix, whatever, and then just jump back on it. So it's great. I mean, I've, I've got a uh, – I'm on Pro Tools 10. I've got 11 uh, on my laptop, but 10 works really good for me. It's just rock solid. Uh, I've got everything I need plug-in-wise, so I just haven't really updated to like 11 and yet. Uh Seems like every time I have updated in the past, there's bugs and it slows me down. So I'm kind of the uh, of the mindset: Hey, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know? Yeah, you know. I wish I was still back on ten. I'm on twelve now, twelve six or whatever. And uh, boy, if I had to do over again, I wouldn't have changed. So you did the right thing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I love hearing that. <laughs> That's the first time I've been right in a long time. <laughs> when you first started mixing in the box, did you have a hard time getting the sound you were looking for? You know, I didn't. 
I didn't. A lot of people uh, that were diehard, you know, SSL guys or Neve guys, I imagine they did, uh, but I really didn't just because I was so open-minded and I was more focused on uh, just saying it worked than I was worrying about if it sounded, you know, I wasn't like a B in it back and forth off my old mixes on like an SSL and stuff like that. Uh, and I, I, I always used to say this back in the day <clears throat> when people were ribbing me about mixing it, I was, I would always say, Hey, if you can tell me what something is mixed on after hearing a song on the radio, I'll give you a hundred dollars. You can go, <laughs> Oh, that was mixed on an API. That was mixed on an SSL. That was mixed in the console, blah, 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 or in the box. And to this day, I've never given anybody a hundred dollars because they couldn't tell me the truth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. And now more than ever, everybody's mixing in the box now, you know, yeah. and plugins have gotten so good. But back in the day, the, the, the biggest thing that stumbled us was, uh, or stumbled me was just the delay compensation. Yeah. You know, it was really hard without in the earlier version of pro tools until delay compensation came out it was really hard to not make stuff slam and you'd have to offset your tracks and print your samples and then offset them so that they would fit and, and not flam and all that stuff. So that was a challenge, but boy, once delay compensation came along, it was like, just click one button and it's, you're in Nirvana. You mentioned using templates to mix. Let's talk about that for a second. How did you develop that? Uh, I was actually mixing, something one time and I really liked the sound of it. And I was like, man, I really wish I could figure out how to turn this into something that I could use every time and just dump my drums in. Cause I, I was a creature of habit. I used the same samples over and over and over. And I was like, I've got so much work. I need to figure out how to speed this up. So I just one day just imported in, the old session over the new one, I imported in two sessions, one that had uh, the the full mix, and then I imported in the audio for the next song, and then I deleted all the other, the previous song, and slid all the old, the brand new, or let me go back. I deleted the old audio and then slid up the new audio I imported in, and I was like, oh, man, this works great. So then I just kind of started refining that process, and... Uh, even today, I just the the most latest quote unquote greatest thing, if I have a greatest thing, uh, becomes my latest template, and I just keep using it over and over, and then I add to it. So if I find something that works in something I've done before, I'll add it, you know, into that template, and just keep adding and adding. So it's like compilation of over oh geez, probably fifteen years of just adding and refining and finding stuff that works and stuff that doesn't work and. I don't think I've changed my my bass track in probably five years. I've been using the same exact processing. So it's worked out really good. Yeah, I, I love the idea of this because, again, who wants to spend the hours and hours that we normally spend on this when, you, you know, especially when you're doing an album, the first song you spend all of your time on, and then after that, everything is pretty much the same. So it's like, why, why should I reinvent the wheel for every song here? So it makes perfect sense to me. Yeah, that's, that's kind of what, what I adopted. And especially here in Nashville, it gives you a level of consistency from a song to song when you are doing a record, uh, rather than starting from scratch. I hate when I listen to a record 
and songs sound different song to song. You know, it's like they changed instruments, they changed drum sounds, they changed everything. And a lot of that back in the day was just they couldn't get the recall dead on the money, you know, and it was almost like starting from scratch. But now it's like you can just go boom, 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 and, and you get a level of consistency. And it sounds like, oh, yeah, they went in. And even if the record was done over the period of six months, it's like, oh, yeah, they they this sounds like a cohesive batch of songs, you know. Yeah, you can go yeah. from one to the next and enjoy the sound. And me, being an engineer, when I I will buy something even if I don't like the music, but if I like the mixing. You know? Yeah, sure. So I've got I've got some guys I admire out there, and I'll go buy product on a band that I just hate. But if it sounds cool, I mean that's all I care about. You know, I don't even listen to anything other than like the the Sonics anymore. You know. Well, okay. That being said, you have a template that you start from. Do you feel that limits you in trying new things? In other words, trying to keep up with whatever the sounds are that you hear in the radio that people want. Does starting from a template prevent you from doing that or make it more difficult? No, I haven't found that. Uh, I can, let me see, on, on for instance, like the, the main thing that's ever going to change is drums. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everything else, an acoustic guitar is always going to be an acoustic guitar in Nashville. Uh, an electric is going to be an electric, a bass is going to be a bass. So the only thing you're really going to change is maybe the effects on the vocals as far as trends go or sounds of like drums, you know, like right now they're into a real roomy sound, like a seventies vibe, uh, almost like two, two room mics on the whole kit and that's it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then a lot of effects and stuff. They've got the old tape echo slap effect going on. A lot of people are into that, you know, kind of the retro thing, but no, other than that, uh, with, with this template, all I have to do is just duck my samples lower or put them on, you know, just the twos and the fours to reinforce the reel and just bury those. And I can get that, that two, two mics on a drum kit sound, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's just, I always just add, I supplement the drums. I don't totally replace them. I just add the samples to it. So by just raising and lowering the volume of my four samples, and then with the addition of the top mic on the snare and the bottom mic, the real snare, uh, and the kick doing the same thing, uh, you can pretty much get anything you want, you know, yeah. from, I'll call it real or fake. we'll go real or fake, you know? Right, right. So by just blending it in. So, uh, I mean, you, you've got an unlimitless palette. And what I do do is if I do get bored with my sounds, I'll come in on my days off, which I don't have many, but when I do, uh, I will come in and practice, you know, I'll call all buddies and say, Hey, I need some new samples. And we share and pass back and forth. And a lot of times I'll call my metal buddies because they've got the coolest drum sounds out there, you know? <laughs> yeah. So they're like, they're sending me all the, the hip cool samples. They've got all trimmed and edited and the, the really good sounding, uh, snappy, you know, kicks and snares and all that stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Metal drum sounds are edgy. That's for sure. Especially the kick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you use the same template for different artists or types of music, or do you have different templates for different genres of music, let's say? Uh, yes. Yeah, I've got some templates that I know work for harder music, you know, uh, more rock style, maybe metal. And then I've got stuff that's laid out just that's got pre-EQ 
fiddles, mandolins, dobros. So I go to that for my Nashville sounds, you know. <clears throat> and then I've got a template uh, I use on like a bluegrass record that I keep around that's real organic sounding. So yeah, I've uh, I've got different templates, but you'd be surprised at how one template could work for different music by just changing the source material, you know, hmm. and then just blending the samples up and down. So, but for the most part, um, I've got it set up. A voice is always going to be a voice, you know, a guitar is going to be a guitar, bass going to be a bass. And like I said, the only thing usually that changes I've found is the drums. So I can take just my standard template that I use on like a daily basis and, jump from an EDM record to a metal record to a country record, you know, wow. and, uh, it worked. Wow. Yeah. I, I did it on a, I did a, I did a show called nail the mix for the unstoppable recording machine. Yeah. Yeah. The Joey Sturgis. Yeah. And, uh, uh, they had me mix some country stuff and then they threw me a metal song, almost like a, a hardcore metal song, like a metal core song. And, uh, it worked. I put my, I just fired my template right over the top of it, and they were like, oh, wow, it works. That sounds pretty cool, you know? It blows my mind, actually, that it would. You should try it. It's pretty cool. Just change the source material, and you'd be shocked at how, you know, the overheads, how much drums come in the overheads and stuff like that. But keep the same settings for something you love, and then just change your source material, and it, it you, you wouldn't even recognize it, you know? It's shocking how much it'll change, surprisingly, but it saves you hours setting up from scratch you know so it's the only way i like to work now what i find interesting is uh you, you know ken scott is right one of the five beetle engineers and uh producer for mm -hmm. bowie and super tramp and i asked him to track a band that i was uh, basic tracks that i was producing and he had a very interesting approach to eq that actually fits right into what you're talking about he wouldn't EQ the sound of the instrument. He would EQ the microphone. So in other words, he would figure out the deficiencies of the microphone, and he did over years and years because he always uses the same ones. And he knew just where to cut and where to boost. And what that meant was that, for instance, he would have the same mics and we would replace the drum kit and it would work or a guitar amp or whatever the case. Once he had his setup on the microphones, it worked no matter what which is basically the same thing that you're doing. You're, you're, you're approaching it from a little different aspect, but it's the same general idea. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Now, let's take it one step further and have him track something that I mix, and it'll take <laughs> template <laughs> on template. What would that sound like? <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Template times two. Template times two. Yes, but what you're doing, though, if I get this right, is you know the general deficiencies of an instrument, so you're either putting it in or you know where their peaks generally are and you're pulling them out, and it's the same no matter what. So you're doing the same thing in a way. Yeah, absolutely, and that's one of the things I tell whenever anybody asks what are like some pointers and stuff like that to do in the studio. I'm like, become a student of frequencies. I'm like, I'm a huge believer in, and you figure it out just, sitting in the same chair for 17 years, you know, you just figure out where it's in the frequency spectrum and you don't even have to think about it. You just go there, you know, you can almost hear it. So I always tell people though, when they're uh, starting out to print, go on the internet and print one out, a frequency chart of musical instruments and see where like says 
okay, a guitar is between this and this frequency. A voice is between this, you know, and just kind of play around with it and uh, make that your almost your audio Bible, you know? Yeah, yeah. When you were f- first determining this, were you using the technique where you boost and then sweep around to find where the peaks are? Was that the way you did it? Yeah. Uh, one of the engineers that I, uh, I guess, intern, not, not intern because I had a job there, but he was the owner of the studio, and he was a good engineer in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, a guy by the name of Rob Olsh. And he taught me how to EQ, and he always said, remember this little nursery rhyme. He said, find the pain, reduce the gain. <laughs> so he basically just cranked, you know, uh, his console actually went up to like 24 dB. So he would just crank this, you know, mm-hmm. 24 dB and find the nastiest sound, and that's what you cut. So he said, find the pain, reduce the gain. So to this day, that's what I, I adhere to. Find the pain where it just sounds horrible and get rid of it. Yeah, right. Well, that's that's the idea. You know, it's funny. I recently got in a country record to mix, and the rough mixes, I listened to them. They were so good. And I had the Pro Tools section, and I looked at it, and virtually every instrument, every track, the EQ was mostly cut. There was very little boost in. And I looked at that, and I thought, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. Because, you know, if it goes the other way, then then usually you get a lot of phase shift and, you know, there's a lot of clashing and stuff. But when you go the other way and you're cutting, then it's like, okay, yeah, it sounds more musical that way. Yeah. On the uh, on my vocal track especially, I don't hardly uh, boost at all. It's all cuts and stuff like that on, on vocals. I'll add just a few dB up at like 15... Uh, kilohertz way up top you know yeah so that it uh adds some air but other than that i'm I'm cutting it you know 300 200 180 160 and then high passing around you know 100 100 125 somewhere around there yeah take out the rumble and stuff but yeah it's mostly cuts you know it, it sounds a little more natural yeah to me Billy, what do you do when you have multiple guitars? So, for instance, if you had guitar doubles or just have something where there's three guitars going on at the same time, say three electrics, how does your template work for that? Uh, I'll actually just uh, say I've got I've got two guitars set up in the template, you know, left and a right. A lot mm-hmm. of times we'll get either two guitars or a stereo guitar, and I'll just duplicate it and then uh, – dump the audio in that and then you know if it's a a little bit different sound then I'll, I'll just eq it and stuff but for the most part the limiters and the the compression that's already on there i'll just leave as is you know mm-hmm. and a lot of times i've got this template so refined that i'll actually go in and clip gain up the audio to a certain level that i know will hit the uh compressors and limiters the right way so Take, for instance, if I get a session in and uh, the audio is printed too uh, low, uh, I actually know by sight, by putting uh, my waveforms in medium waveform, that I need about a quarter inch on top and a quarter inch on bottom of dead air, like space, Mm -hmm. on the actual waveform. And uh, I know if I gain it up to about that size in medium waveform, it'll actually hit all my processing the way it's set up to. So. 
funny enough, I, I almost look at it as much as I listen to it, you know, That's so to cool. get it just dialed in. That's so cool. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's just kind of a fun thing I've just figured out over the years. How about effects? What's in your template for effects? Uh, it's pretty simple. I've got uh, a Renaissance reverb, uh, almost like a, just a small room for like instrument verb. I've got the, what is it that I've got? Who makes Echo Farm? The Amp Farm, the guys that make Amp. Oh, Line 6, yeah. Line 6, yeah, yeah, yeah. I use uh, Echo Farm for my uh, guitar delays. Uh, the memory man setting. And then I also use, that's my vocal uh, delay as well. So I use a guitar pedal for my vocal delays because it's kind of dark and grainy. Mm. Uh, and then I just use uh, Renaissance reverb for vocal uh, reverb as well. And then I usually put a, almost like a doubler or a, a, a fake harmonizer that I can run the backgrounds through that I've got set up to mimic like the old, uh, analog version of the h3000 the eventide oh yeah so uh but that's it that's it just a couple verbs a couple delays and uh most of the drum verb is uh room samples so you know slate uh trigger they've got uh the room samples yeah i'll just use yeah i'll just fire off a snare room and that's all i'll put on the the drums so I usually don't put any verb on the drums at all, just the room sample. Wow, very cool. How about compression? Are you using a lot? I do. I use uh, a lot of compression and a lot of limiting. Uh, and I use a little bit of each one, and it just kind of all sums up so that by the time everything hits the master bus, uh, I usually end up dropping my master bus down, you know, 5, 6, sometimes 10, 11 dB. Because everything is gained up, and I'm so used to just working that way. It's almost backwards. Everybody says, no, put your master bus at zero, and then bring your other faders down. And for the life of me, I've battled that over the years. And finally, about five years ago, I said, the hell with it. I'm giving <laughs> up. I'm just going to do what I do. Yeah, yeah, right. So I just bring the master fader down and then just make it up, you know, with limiting or or normalize the signal up or whatnot, you know. But, uh, yeah, I use a lot of them but just a little bit of each one and it just seems to uh all sum up and kind of get all big and fat and kind of level itself out and you know it almost just takes care of itself i don't do a whole lot of rides either so uh, i use a lot of static channels so even the vocal i'll just run the verse at one level and then i'll bop it up a db or so in the chorus and then uh comes back down in the verse and then back up so it almost just looks like a a, a straight line with just a little arch in the chorus and then back to the verse and then a chorus and then, you know, a bridge maybe up to, and then out. Mm, so yeah. about three bumps, bumps in the vocal rod and that's it. You said you're, you have to decrease your master fader. Does that mean you're not using processing on the mix bus? No, I am. I am. And I'll just, uh, increase since I've say, for instance, I've got my master fader down at, 10 dB minus 10 dB, you know, mm -hmm. I'll, uh, I'll just gain up one of the, uh, compressor outputs or, uh, you know, like a limiter output. I'll just push that up mm -hmm. to kind of make up all that, that lost signal. How about plugins? What are your favorites? Uh, I've used metric halo since day one, uh, for my EQ, their channel strip. Uh, I use a lot of the wave stuff. 
1176, LA 2As, Renaissance Vocal, Renaissance Axe. Uh, the DSers are cool. The old ones. I don't like the the Renaissance ones, but the old ones. Uh, let's see. I use a lot of uh, API plugins that URS made or URM. No, URS. URS. Oh yes, sure. Um, Bobby Nathan's plugins. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I love those. Those are really good. I I just like feel of them. Or <laughs> ironically, I'm using a mouse, so I say feel. But just the way they uh the way the knobs move and stuff like that and the way out, I really like them and they sound great, you know? Uh, let me see. Do, do, do Sony Oxford plugins. I'll use those. Uh, Kramer Pi. I like that compressor on the two bus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and L2s, L3s. Love those. They mm-hmm. make everything big and loud. So Cool. But yeah, not 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 too much. I don't usually change stuff, and every once in a while, I'll get something new in. I'll try it. Uh, I like uh, lately. I've been clipping using the JST, the Joey Sturgis tones, uh, the clipper that he's got. I'll put that on guitars and on the drum bus, and it actually uh, I don't know what it does. It just does. It's a one knob thing, and it just kind of makes everything bigger and pulls it to your face. You know, kind of makes it stand out in the mix. I haven't tried that one, but I, I love his finality though. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've got that one. Uh, that one I'll use in place of L2 a lot. Mm-hmm. The waves L2. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, try the clipper. You'll love that. He's okay. got one called sidewinder too, that you can widen guitars out. If you've got a mono guitar or something, you can run it through that and it just gets real wide. So it's kind of fun. And how about speakers? You're using, um, audio file speakers. Uh, I'm using the Mackies. Oh, uh, okay. The 824 Mark 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 IIs, yeah. And then I've got the Wathen Audio uh, speakers. It's a little company down in, uh, I think they're down in Texas. And the uh, the owner made me a set of his speakers, and he and I really hit it off good. So I really like those. He kind of catered them. He came up and helped me tune tune them to my room. Uh, and I've got a sub on those, and then I've also got an 18-inch quested sub locked to the Mackies as well. And then I run everything uh, at the end of the day through this old, crappy, early 2000s boom box. Like a JVC, it's still got the cassettes in the front of it and everything <laughs> like that, and the CD player in it. And it was the cheapest one I could find that had line ends. So I just hardwire it to the console, through the headphone output, and... Uh, I figure if I can make it sound good on a boombox, it's probably going to be decent just about in any elevator or earbuds or anything like that. So I found the lowest common denominator and figured if I could do it there, I could do it anywhere. Yeah, for me, I got the cheapest pair of computer monitors I could. I could find. They're, they're, they're no names. Oh. There's no brand on them at all, and they're so bad that they're yeah. great. <laughs> yes, Exactly. And after a while, you get so used to them that you almost need them. You know, you can start checking vocal levels through them. And my little boombox, I can always tell if something's too bright on that thing and if the vocal's too loud. That's yeah. about the only two things it's good for. Last question, Billy. You've been doing this for a while, and uh, obviously it means that you're in business for yourself. So 
What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Well, let's see. I am 100% self-employed. I've always been, so I really don't know anything different. I will tell you this, though. When you're self-employed, nine times out of ten, if I'm not mistaken, you've got to pay quarterly taxes. So I would suggest everybody setting aside money as it comes in, in a little fun, knowing that you've got to pay taxes. You don't want to get behind on your taxes, you know, because then you just dig yourself a hole in a hole. And uh, I would say, yeah, being in business for yourself, get yourself a good tax guy or gal, because uh, there are a bunch of write-offs you can do when you do have your own business that you may not think of, you know? Yeah. I've got a, the studio here I lease at, uh, I didn't used to lease at a studio, and by leasing at this studio, I get to actually write off my lease note or my rent. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and then I provide, or actually my wife, she goes out to, does a Costco run and gets toilet paper, napkins, creamer, coffee, snacks for the studio. All that you can write off. So know your write-offs and uh, definitely make sure you save money for taxes, so. That'd probably be my best advice. And don't ever buy a studio. Yeah. <laughs> you don't ever want to own a studio. <laughs> Never own a studio. Everybody's asked me, like, why don't you own it? I'm like, hell no. Yeah. Not own a studio. Terrible investment. Work at one. Don't own it. With your studio, is it just for mixing or can you track there as well? I can do overdubs. I've an overdub booth. Yeah. So I can, uh, do one in, I've got one uh, SSL Logic preamp. It's the XL Logic, the channel strip. Mm -hmm. So I've basically got just one microphone that I can sing, do an overdub, or do a guitar overdub, or something like that. But no, it's you can't track in my specific room. It's just a mix suite. On the front of the building has a full tracking room in it, and uh, I'm over at Westwood. I'm in the back of Westwood in the cabin, but up front that I'm attached to. Uh, the claim to fame at Westwood is this is where the Dixie Chicks did all their stuff back in the day and a bunch uh. of other country artists, but the Dixie Chicks kind of made this place famous. And uh, it's a it's a literally it's a log cabin. So even the tracking room has log cabin walls and the ceilings wood. So the tracking room is huge and it sounds fantastic. I'm convinced there's something about wood and audio that just almost like a hand in a glove. It just works. I don't know what it is, but wood and audio is just the perfect marriage to me. Yeah. They go so together. I'm in a log, log cabin and my front wall is literally exposed logs. So it almost acts like a natural diffuser. So my whole front wall is untreated and then the back wall's treated. And then the rest is, you know, there's a lot of knotty pine and the exposed timbers and it just, boy, it just seems to work good. You know, it looks cool, but it also sounds great. It oh. just warms it up. To find out more about Billy, go to BillyDecker.com. It's all one word, BillyDecker, D-E-C-K-E-R. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at BobbyOInnerCircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, and Google Play. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOInnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.